This week's podcast is something a bit different. One of my listeners from Minnesota kindly sent me a book he found in a second-hand shop over there. It's a strange little thing called How to Survive an Atomic Bomb, and today we're going to explore it. Of course, regular listeners to the podcast will know it's going to be bloody difficult to survive nuclear war. So who would be brazen enough to publish a book claiming you could? Well, the book was published in 1950, so we must remember that was before the dreadful, awful, pulverising, world-ending hydrogen bomb had been invented. In 1950, we were still dealing only with atomic bombs. In my mind, the Cold War, and yes, the whole notion of civil defence, can be neatly cut in two. There was the Atomic Age, when, yeah, you could survive an atomic bomb. Look at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, with aid and rescue and recovery, they got back in their feet. A city can survive an atomic bomb. We know this. So in 1950, it could even be said that you could survive an atomic war. Not just an attack, not just one or two bombs, but an actual atomic war. And yes, fine, I'll take that. A country with enough resources, or with enough allies who were able and willing to help them, could claw their way back, yes, from atomic war. In the 1980s, the British Medical Association said that the NHS couldn't cope with One atomic bomb exploding on Britain, let alone numerous bombs in an atomic war. So yes, the NHS might collapse, society might collapse, but yes, you could, in theory, recover from it. It is not the end of the world. So when this little orange book was published in 1950, yes, you could be forgiven for thinking that atomic war would be horrendous, but it's not going to kill everyone. It's not going to end the world. And look at the front cover of the book. You'll find pictures uploaded onto my social media. It has an image of a family, all in white, and they're looking up. A pessimist might think they're white because they're being engulfed by the white heat of the bomb. Any second now, and the blast wave will reach them, and they'll be pulverised. They'll be smashed into atoms. But look closely at the family on the front cover, and you'll see they're smiling. So this is a hopeful, optimistic family. With smiles and slightly upturned faces, the image changes to one of hope. This is a family looking to a new dawn, 
walking towards a new and better world. Compare the smiling white family on the front to the white family on the front of Protect and Survive. They had no joyful expressions. They had no expressions at all. No facial features. They're just blank white figures. Lay the booklet flat on the desk and they become chalk outlines drawn by cops at a murder scene. Or they're blank white outlines of a family that once was. Which reminds me of the Ray Bradbury story, There Will Come Soft Rains, where a nuclear blast has scorched the shadows of a family onto the wall of their house. But back to America, back to 1950s, back to this book. We see optimism, hope and smiling faces. That's what we get on the front cover. Next to the title, delivered in a bold, charming, curling blue font, which says... How to Survive an Atomic Bomb If you were a smiling family bathed in a heavenly white glow in 1950, I wouldn't have been too relaxed, because something was coming that was about to snuff out that joyful light. In just two years from this book's publication, the world had changed forever. In just two years, it would be impossible to find safety anywhere. Anywhere. In just two years, there would no longer be a corner of the globe, no longer a single nook or cranny where you can stretch out your arms, turn your face to the sky and think, yeah, everything's okay here. Because in two years, the first hydrogen bomb explodes. In November 1952, out in the Pacific, the bomb codenamed Ivy Mike was born. Mike was, even though it's... Impossible to comprehend. 450 times as powerful as the Nagasaki bomb. So that's your hydrogen bomb. That's the first one. Bigger ones followed, of course. The biggest being Tsar Bomba. Young Mike had a yield of 10 megatons, but Big Tsar Bomba had about 50. But let's not get sidetracked into the horror of the hydrogen bomb. We've looked at it in previous episodes. You can find them all in the archive. But let's just say Mike changed everything. With Mike on the scene, and all the other Mikes who came after him, you could no longer talk with confidence about surviving nuclear war. Well, not with a straight face, at least. But let's reel it back to the relative atomic innocence of 1950. That era of glowing white families looking to the horizon. The era when this book arrived. So let's uh, consider the author who wrote this thing. It was a Richard Gerstel. And he wasn't just some guy, some nobody. He had served in the Navy, after which he went on to work at the atomic testing sites out in the Pacific, where he was Senior Radiological Safety Monitor at Operation Crossroads. A reminder that Crossroads was the first atomic test after the war, and it was composed of two blasts, Abel and Baker, and we've discussed those in the relatively recent Rita Hayworth episode, which you'll find in the archive. The first test of Crossroads, Abel, was the one with Rita Hayworth's portrait on the bomb casing, and then came Baker, which was an underwater test. So our man, Richard Gerstel, was out there working at a senior level in radiation monitoring, so 
we can assume he knows his stuff. And we must be fair and remember that if his book now sounds naive and hopelessly optimistic, we must remember it was 1950. It was the atomic age. The monstrous Mike had not yet been born. And to be even fairer to the guy, his book is called How to Survive an Atomic Bomb, not How to Survive an Atomic War. The first section of the book goes out of its way to avoid using the word war, or the phrase atomic war, or nuclear war. The guy must have had a thesaurus open on his desk trying to find a million alternative words so he didn't need to speak of war. In his first section he mentions an atomic bomb, an atomic attack, an atomic explosion, he mentions raids and weapons, but never, never war. The message of this little opening section is that if you're caught at the centre of an atomic blast, Nothing can help you. But if you manage to dodge or somehow survive the initial blast, then help is at hand. This little book will tell you what you need to do to, quote, keep you from further risking your life. Well, now that implies that the big fat danger is the blast. And if you can just evade it, just evade that initial blast, just duck and cover, you'll be okay. That ignores the long and dreadful shadow of what comes after the atomic blast. That's the bad part, that's what scares me. The fallout, the collapse of society, the starvation, the disease, the anarchy, the brutality. Ah, but wait, wait. This is my obsession with threads creeping back in, colouring everything as it always does. Remember, this is the atomic age. My imagination always surges instantly to apocalyptic horror. This little book is dealing with an atomic attack, no one's mentioned war, atomic attack on a city, which implies Hiroshima and Nagasaki. One bomb on one city, where there are able and equipped rescue services and aid at hand. No one's mentioning war. In the first chapter, he talks of the danger caused by panic and what we might today call misinformation or fake news. He says that if an atomic bomb did fall on New York or San Francisco, many would die due to panic. Well, I agree with him there, and I direct you once again to the book Fallout by Fred Pierce, with which I'm quite obsessed. He talks in Fallout about the evacuation from Fukushima. And he points out that no one was killed by the radiation at Fukushima, but plenty were killed by the fear of radiation, by the botched and panicky evacuation. Fear of radiation killed people, not the actual radiation. But nonetheless, it seems to me that in this book, Richard Gerstel is, by talking of panic at the very beginning, he's turning the attention away from the bomb and he's turning it onto us, you silly people, you little fools, running and crying. If you'd only just follow orders and do as you're told and 
educate yourselves and maybe you wouldn't die in such numbers. It's like he's shifting the blame. And in the background, the atomic bomb is just shrugging and saying, yeah, what are you going to do? I'm just trying to do my job here, just nuke a city and... You've got all these idiots running about, causing crushes and stampedes and mental breakdown and car crashes. Nothing to do with me. So we're kicking off this book by blaming people. Richard Gerstel says, We would kill ourselves just by not knowing what the bomb does and how to take care of ourselves. Just by not knowing what's in this small book. Ignorance makes fear. Fear makes panic. Panic can be an enemy's best weapon. The Americans exercised a lot of that type of thinking in the Cold War. If we could just get the public to be calm and cool about the bomb, then we could manufacture as many as we liked. But ah, uh, people, people and their fears and their messy emotions, they do snarl things up for us. I've talked to this before, um, either on the podcast or I've written about it in my book, I can't remember which. The Americans called it conventionalisation, trying to lessen the public's terror of the atomic bomb by saying, hey, it's not so bad, it's only a bomb after all. Just the same as the bombs of the Second World War, but, you know, a bit bigger, a bit hotter, a bit more eyeball melting. But still, just a bomb. It's not a monster, not an alien. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in the opening section of this book. It's still just a bomb. Nice bit of conventionalisation there. The author says, The atomic bomb is the most powerful and terrible weapon ever made by man, but there are limits to what it can do. If you know exactly what it can do, you have a better chance to take care of yourself. What's just as important, if you know what it can't do, if you learn how many foolish stories about the bomb have been spread around, you won't be any more afraid of it than you need to be. That's some hardcore conventionalisation there. It's just a bomb. Why are you panicking? But, of course, there's one aspect of the atomic bomb that those who deploy conventionalisation can easily sweep aside and that's fallout. They might say, it's just a bomb. We've all seen them on the telly. Explosion, kapow, flame, a couple of houses fall down. Big deal. So what else is new? The atomic bomb just delivers that same old, same old, but on a bigger scale, so deal with it. Ah, but fallout, sinister, invisible, lethal fallout. That was new. Conventional bombs don't sprinkle you with invisible death, which will sprout sores on your skin, make you vomit and bleed, make you wither and weaken, make your teeth and hair drop to the tainted earth. So all they can do, if they're trying to conventionalise the bomb, is say that fallout is something against which you can easily defend yourself. And so our author writes, The rays are what worry people most, and they are what makes the atomic bomb different from ordinary bombs. The bomb gives off these rays when it explodes, but you can't see them. You can't feel them. 
You may even be hit by them and go right on without ever knowing it. Now let's interrupt him there. He talks of rays. Instead of fallout or radiation, words which are of course loaded with unpleasant associations, he speaks of rays. Almost a pretty word. Rays of sunshine. A ray is associated with light, not poison and death. More importantly, a ray is gentle. It's insubstantial. You can't, a ray can't clobber you or blast your house down or scar you or or bring the roof down onto the wife and kids. And he says that these rays might indeed touch you and you won't even know it. You won't even get ill or sick. You could just go right on. Whilst it's technically true that you can absorb some radiation without ill effect, why on earth would you promote that idea? In the chaos and disorganisation following an attack, he's implying that it's okay, you can take some on board, why worry? Go your merry way without any ill effect. He goes on to say, there were 42,000 men at the two atomic explosions, which the government scientists and defence forces set off at Bikini in the Pacific Ocean. That's Operation Crossroads, of course, he's referring to there. Not a single one of those 42,000 men was hurt by atomic rays. Those men were prepared. They knew how to take care of themselves. So again there, he's blaming the little guy. Those big, tough, patriotic soldiers and officials, they know how to look after themselves. The implication is that if you don't, then you're going to end up being hurt by rays. You're a wimp. You're an incompetent. Plus, how does he know for sure that 42,000 men weren't hurt by the rays? The Crossroads tests were in 46, just four years before this book was written. There could be long-term effects. You can't just bundle everyone back home and say, forget about it, no one is ill today, therefore no one will be ill ever. So yes, he's a fan of the short term, this author. A few pages onwards, and he speaks again of the the delicate rays, saying, the bomb gives off rays at the moment it explodes, and for some seconds afterwards. The danger from them lasts about 90 seconds. Then they are gone. Now, of course, the implication that everything is hunky-dory after 90 seconds is maddening. Yes, the bomb will throw out a burst of radiation when it explodes, but what about fallout? What about the radiation or the rays that come from the actual fallout? All that muck and dust and pulverised city and pulverised population, which is ground up and then scooped up into the mushroom clouds and then comes back down later irradiated? What about that? Well, he gives that some slight attention later, but again using careful word choice, calling it bomb ashes. And then with a dismissive tone, refers to it as, quote, fallout stuff. And then, sounding like the author of a ladybird book, says, if you do what this little book tells you to do, you can easily protect yourself from it. That same maddening, patronising, childlike tone pops up throughout the book, such as when he's talking later about Geiger counters. He says the best-known instrument for measuring radiation is called a Geiger counter. And he writes, If you've never heard that word said aloud, it's pronounced Geiger, 
like Tiger. So, no worries, it's never referred to as lethal, deadly fallout. It's just rays, it's just stuff. He goes on about these rays using the conventionalisation approach again by comparing them to a bullet. You might get hit by a bullet and find you're only slightly injured or even just grazed. Being hit by a bullet is not necessarily a guarantee of death. And it's the same with these rays, this stuff. Not guaranteed to kill you. Just because it touches you or passes through you, it's not a death sentence. You might just be slightly hurt by it. So it's just like a bullet then. It's just like that normal tool of war. Oh, except he never mentions war, does he? In his very careful use of words so far, he has, and I'm on page 19 by now, I don't think he's mentioned war once. And isn't that the greatest example of conventionalization? War? Why would you mention war? What have these invisible little rays got to do with something as nasty as war? And just let me offer you another example of his Ladybird book explanations, combined with a good hefty dose of the conventionalization. He writes, Radiation is usually measured in units of measurement called rontgens. Often they are simply called Rs. Water is measured in quartz. Distance is measured in miles. Radiation is measured in Rs. And it goes on and on. Once you're aware of conventionalisation and nuclear war writing, you see it everywhere in this book. Again, speaking of the amount of radiation we might absorb, he likens it to alcohol in that a little glass now and then won't harm you. He poses the question, that sounds something like liquor. A little bit won't do you any harm, but a lot of it will. Is that the way it is? And he answers his own question, exactly. Just as a quart of whiskey, if a grown man drinks it over a month's time, probably won't hurt him. So here we have the ladybird tone, the conventionalisation, and while we're at it, why not wheel out some self-righteous hints about the evils of drink? Good Americans who want to stay safe won't be jumping about in the fallout. They'll be at home looking after their families, protecting them. And they certainly won't be boozing it up. And that ends section one of the book about fallout. Sorry, sorry, not fallout. About harmless and invisible rays which dance and twinkle in the atomic sunlight. There's a lot to unpack, as they say, in this strange little book, so we will finish the rest of it next week. And before we go, let's turn to more important matters, such as who won my hideous mushroom cloud lamp. You might have seen on Twitter and Facebook that my husband bought me a nuclear lamp, and I'm giving it away to one of my patrons because it's hideous. (laughs) Although it's hideous in a, a kitsch way. It's basically an eerie, glowing mushroom cloud. So I'm choosing a name from amongst my patrons. But remember, if you're the winner and you don't want the monstrous thing, I won't send it to you. You will not be forced to receive a mushroom cloud from me. But first, let me thank my latest patrons. These excellent people have signed up in the last week and they're donating some of their hard-earned cash to supporting my podcast and my nuclear research. And I am grateful to all of them. Let me say thank you this week to Karen Marcus, Hendrik Stoops, 
Scott A. Joseph, MD, and Henry Lobb. And if you enjoy my work, please do consider donating something each month. It can be as little as a pound or a dollar a month. You get various rewards for doing so, and it keeps this podcast free of horrible adverts. Please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. So before I go, the winner of the hideous mushroom cloud lamp is Paul Jonathan Viner. Now, Paul, I'll email you to ask if you want the thing. (laughs) And if you don't, just let me know and I will uh, choose another name. So I will be back next week, hopefully Monday, maybe Tuesday, where we will look at the rest of the strange book, How to Survive an Atomic Bomb. Thank you all for listening and I will see you next week.